Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. What is spondylolisthesis and how do you pronounce it? Where is it? And what causes it? And what do you do when someone has it and you're working them out? Well, we're going to find out all about that. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Raph. How are you going? Awesome. How are you going? Do you, <laughs> do you think our listeners are playing a game now in regard, like we've got cage line, there's your push up. We've mm, got. Awesome. Awesome. That's two pull-ups. <laughs> two pull-ups. Well, let's say you can do any any uh, pulling type exercise. Yeah, you could do a row or pull-ups or bicep curls. Anything. My gym has these assisted uh, pull-ups, which are freaking a uh, pull-up machine, which mm. is amazing. Mm. So now I'm doing pull-ups. Awesome. That's so cool. I've actually got some doms today. That's another episode. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, today, what are we going to talk about? Uh, so today we're going to... Uh, I don't want to have to say the oh, word. Why don't you ask me then? Thanks, yeah, Ralph. Right. Okay. What are we going to talk about today, <laughs> Ralph? <laughs> We're going to talk about spondylolisthesis. Awesome. So, guys, can you see why? <laughs> it's It's got to be probably the hardest uh, name in the book to pronounce. I reckon we're getting close to. And I've got one and I can't say it. <laughs> I say spondy. Yeah, that's what everyone says because yeah. no one can pronounce it. Because no one can say it or spell it. Try spelling it. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about spondylolisthesis, what it is, um, t- uh, what we can do for people who have it, uh, and also a related condition, spondylolysis, which is similar but not the same, and we'll talk about the differences and why you should care and what you can do about it. Fantastic. So if we're looping back to the elephant in the room, uh, I would say that the elephant in the room is that it's it, that it correlates directly with pain. Uh, and that there are specific exercises that we should do if our client presents with it mm. when, and more so that we shouldn't do. Mm. And I think that there, you know, uh, spondyla- exercise for spondylolisthesis. <laughs> Spondy. <laughs> Spondy. <laughs> um, I think, you know, is something that, that instructors are concerned about. Yeah. When I was a kid, in you know, figuratively in Pilates, and was going through my training, you know, I did the injuries and special populations course from Stop Pilates. And uh, for a while I taught that course and I might have, I don't think I taught it to you. No, no, no. I taught it to a bunch of people anyway. And uh, we were taught uh, no extension for spondylolisthesis. That was just a, a rule, right? I'm you, sure you I would have, I learned some really great rules and I would have very diligently written them down and I would have applied them. Because you're a rule follower. <laughs> No, no, well, I think it's. I think we've spoken about this before. It's um, all of this. All of this comes from instructors wanting to do the best by their clients, mm, right, and mm. wanting to do no harm yep. and uh, a sense of duty of care. Yeah. And I think whenever we think about, well, where has something fear based come from? It's originated from wanting to do the best for our clients. Yep. Um, 
but the issue being that when when times don't move with 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 evidence and and latest best practice that what then happens is that fear then correlates with creating fear in our clients of movement yeah. and just you know mm. so we're going to look at that opposite is, of what we want to do is spondylolisthesis something we need to be concerned about is it correlated with pain and are there specific exercises you should do or avoid uh, all that's coming up but awesome. first but first chloe's dms <laughs> Um, so first of all, big shout out to everyone who sends me a DM. I love it. Sometimes I'm a little tardy with getting back to them, um, because I seem to get DMs at all, all hours of the day, night, week, but please keep them coming. That's not to say don't keep them coming. Um, but just know that sometimes it takes me a little, little while to, to reply. Um, but I read all of them and I appreciate all of them and I'm loving all the inquisitive questions that's coming through. Uh, a theme that has been uh, on repeat a bit of late and I I see this because this is um, instructors who are now being privy to a new way of queuing, of promoting motor learning, etc. that is different to what they they were used to, um, letting go of alignment protocols, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I totally understand that, that phase that, that these instructors are going through. And so they're reaching out to me and saying, but if I'm not mentioning bones and names of muscles and what you should be feeling and what muscles should be activating and, you know, that your knees shouldn't be going over your toes, et cetera, et cetera. And instead I'm using cues such as lift your waistband to the ceiling and, you know, crinkle the front of your shirt and et cetera, et cetera, push the footbar away, rah, 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 uh, that my clients and or my colleagues and boss are going to think I'm dumb. Yeah. So I feel like, um, A, I want to say I get you and that I remember having probably a pretty similar-ish type feeling during my transition from internal to external queuing because there was absolutely – and I feel like I have talked about this a bit in our uh, queuing podcast episode. So if you haven't listened to that, uh, whack that in your ears because um, it's really helpful – uh, I do feel like I did go through a phase, um, particularly as a younger Pilates instructor, and by that I just mean uh, less experienced Pilates instructor. Younger in Pilates I years. I still wasn't that young, you know, in human years. Um, <laughs> how, how many Pilates years in one human year? <laughs> hmm. I'm going to park that question because I quite like it, but it's going to send me down a rabbit hole. Um, and I remember that I used to think, oh, you know, I – it used to make me feel like I was doing my job to know the names of the bones and the mm, muscles mm. and, you know, I, I felt like – and the bottom line is that's about me, not about the clients, okay? So, again, that's about my ego. It's also a little misplaced in what my role is. Like I'm thinking that's my role, but it actually isn't my role. My role is to facilitate a movement experience for the human beings in front of me. Now, if I want to do that in the best possible way, well, I need to facilitate motor learning, aka how people learn movement skills, right? Mm. So therefore, I want to do things like use external cues, facilitate early success and collaborate with my clients. It's that simple. Now, to address the elephant in the potential elephant in the room for the new client. And again, I've given this tip before, but I'm happy to give it again because I think it is important. 
you're in your group class, you've got, you know, you've got all your regulars. They all know, they wouldn't expect you to say any, you know, you've been externally queuing. They'd think it was weird if you all of a sudden said belly button to spine or engage your pelvic floor by 30% or whatever, right? But the new client comes in, he'd never met you before. And you see them going and thinking, you know, address it up front. Let them know. So today I'm going to be using external cues. These are some um, examples of external cues. The reason I'm going to use this is because it's the latest evidence in how you guys are going to have the best movement experience. So what you're actually doing there is you're addressing it so that client's not in class or that uh, instructor's not, other instructor's not come to your class or whatever. And you've addressed that how they actually not only do you know your like what you're doing you're even further ahead because you're using the latest like you are like you got your finger on the pulse that's how I that's how I deal with it what about you Raf? yeah I mean I think that's such an awesome I think that's such an awesome approach and uh, if I was still teaching now I would definitely take that ball and run with it um, I guess a couple of other just peripheral thoughts for me. One is when you're using external cues, actually we know that that helps people get into a flow state better. So they're actually not going to notice what cues you used. They're just going to have an experience of moving, right? They're going to actually, it's going to have actually help them focus away from you and onto the experience that they're having. So they won't remember the specific cues that you gave them most times. They'll just be busy doing their movement. So that's one thing. Uh, and the second thing is like, well, if you've got kind of, I think if you've got kind of um, colleagues who kind of snoop around and listen to you queuing from outside the door or something just to and check, I, to check that on you. It does happen, you know? Ralph. It's pretty, <laughs> pretty common, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Particularly if you work at a studio where there's teachers from all different Right. And, and if you've got people who aren't necessarily, you know, open to the whole idea of, you know, external cues or science-based or it's, you know, newer or whatever. Um, just uh, not as a cue, but just occasionally, you know, in random sequence, throw in the word scapula or, you know, greater trochanter or something like, you know, just say, oh, you know, I heard a funny joke about a scapula the other day or, you know, this, this exercise uh, is really great for your greater trochanter or, you know, just not as a cue, but just like to say a body part so that you, they, they know that you, you know it. You know. See, see, I wouldn't. I, see, this is like this is. See, I wouldn't do that. I would just be like, "Hey, this is why I cue how I cue." I would literally just be like, mm-hmm. because you know, like really, if I know a scapula, what the scapula is or not, like it, it, it doesn't matter. Mm. Anyway, I don't know. You well, could well, do that, or are, you could. There are options. There's options. There's yeah. options. Exactly. Um, so yeah, and and then you know you could even have the the broader discussion with with colleagues and um, bosses etc. And just be like, are you open to seeing some of the cool stuff that I learn about? Mm. Send them some, send them some of the evidence on motor learning as well. Mm. Links in the show notes from our queuing episode. Yeah, and how to have difficult discussions is mm. one of our earlier episodes. Mm. <laughs> So yeah, there's options. There's yeah. options. Um, okay, so I just wanted to address that and just say we need to leave the ego aside and do yeah. what's best for our clients, basically. And I mean, using an internal cue is not going to kill someone. No. And you know, they're ultimately going to. Let's exp- try it. Hold on. Let's just see. Let's do an experiment here, <laughs> Chloe. Engage your right biceps, forty-five percent. Oh, hold on. I can see smoke coming out of your arm there. <laughs> I think you're about to explode. All right, I'll take that cue back. <laughs> 
I did uh, do some <laughs> decent pull-ups yesterday. So you know what? Bit of a swole happening there. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah. But I like it. I just I'm gonna leave. I'm just gonna say one last thing. This is how I explain it to my students. Using so if we want to facilitate a. a a modal learning experience, okay, and we want our client to to I think about it like like driving, like a map. We want to get our client from A to B in this straight line. So we can get them, we can go A to B with our external cues, nice straight line, or we could do a big old detour with internal cues. You're still going to get there, like you're still going to get there. It's just going to take longer. Why would I want it to take longer anyway? Just gotta, you just gotta let it go, shake it off, shake it off. Time to move with the times. Speaking of moving with the times, let's talk about Spondy. Spondy. What is it? What like what is it? What is it? <laughs> Can you what is this thing called Spondy? Um well, Spondy is uh well, there are the two sort of related terms which I think people often um, aren't clear on the difference. One's spondylolisthesis and one's spondylolysis. Um, and they're related but not the same thing. And then there's a third one called uh, ankylizing spondylitis, which is sounds the same but just is a completely and utterly different thing. It's, it's not related, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so we're not going to talk about ankylizing spondylitis because that's a completely different condition. Uh, so uh, I'm kind of fond of etymology, which is the study of how where words come from, you know, like the, the origin, the, the root word. Yeah, you Greek do like Latin. that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, one of my favourite podcasts was the English History Podcast, History of English Podcast for a long time. You yeah. sent that to me, yeah. Yeah, so it's got the history of the English language from the ancient um, kind of Indo-European language and through Germanic languages and Latin. Were you into history at school? Nah, I did no. maths and science. Okay, well that doesn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I never did biology though until I got to university, yeah. Really? So anyway, there you go. What science did you do? Uh, chemistry, physics. <laughs> I did biology. I loved biology. <laughs> loved it. Like I freaking love biology. The others, I was just like, yeah, and maths. I just <laughs> thought biology was like dissecting frogs and. Uh, like I that, um know. I refused. It was dissecting yeah. frogs, but I actually protested on that day. I got in so much trouble. <laughs> I wasn't dissecting the frog. Anyway, I'm an animal lover. You know that. Yeah. Anyway, moving mm. on. That's really interesting. So um uh. So spondylolisthesis is uh, derived from the Greek word olisthenein, which means to slip. Um, so that, uh, and it, so it means the the forward displacement or movement, you know, of one vertebra uh, relative to the one below it. Mm-hmm. So typically, it's the L five, the lowest lumbar vertebra that slips forward on the sacrum. Mm-hmm. Um, although it can be can be other ones, but it's that's the most common one where it happens. Uh, and so yes, yeah, so. Uh, Spondylo um, is comes from the Greek spondulos, which means spine. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of hear the the root word in there. Um, and lis, uh, you know, olisthenein. It has just in Greek um, changed to Latin listhesis, which means to slip forward. So spondylolisthesis means literally means the spine slipped forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. slipped. Doesn't, doesn't mean slipped forward. It just means slipped. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. Yeah, so uh, there's that's spondylolisthesis and a spondylolysis. So again, that spondylo is the that just means the spine, right? Right. 
why can't they just say spine? Oh, but, it'd be you know, so much easier. <laughs> um, and and lysis um, is from the ancient Greek uh, lusis, or which means loosening. Okay, who made up these words? Like, who decided? Like, who? When did these words? Like, who uh, went? We will call that spondylolysis. Well, like, I don't, I don't know <laughs> like this why? for sure, so I'm just kind of <laughs> guessing. But I would say that um, medical, like, and when anatomy was being explored and kind of um, recorded, you know, when we were figuring out, oh, where's the liver and what does the liver do, and yeah, yeah. you know, what, you know, what does the heart do, and what are these veins for and stuff, like all of that was in the, you know, like the the medieval period, mm. up, you know, and so the 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 language of intellectuals was Latin, gotcha. right? So if you were educated, it meant that you read and wrote and spoke Latin. So everything was and, – and, and, you know, if you were German or English or French or whatever, Latin was the common language mm-hmm. of, of all of those sort of intellectual elites. So right. everything was, was done in Latin. Yeah. We've got them to blame. Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so spondylolysis. Spondyli just means a spine mm-hmm. and lysis means a loosening. And uh, spondylolysis is – it's essentially it's a kind of a, a very – it's a hairline fracture. It's a very small fracture of the back part of the vertebra. Right. So they seem like two very different things to me. Yeah, they do, don't they? But yeah. They're, they're quite a bit related. Right. So um, the vertebra, if you you know, if you can picture it, it consists of a big like think of a lumbar vertebra. That you know, the yeah, they're, they're chunky. Bigger. They're big, yeah. right? And particularly the L five, the yeah. lowest lumbar, it's the biggest of all yeah. your vertebrae. Um, so it consists, and, and this is the same for just about all of your vertebrae, except for say the top couple of your cervical vertebrae. But yeah, basically, or, you know, what's basically a vertebra consists of a vertebral body, which is kind of a chunky, round bit at the front. And they're actually, if you're looking from the top, they're more kidney shaped. You know, they're kind of round at the yeah, front, and then there's kind of an indentation at the back, and yeah. that indentation is where the spinal canal is. Yeah. You know, so they're 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 basically kidney shaped. They're maybe I don't know an inch and a half across an inch from front to back. Um, and if you can picture that, and that's the kind of the front, you know, chunky part of it, um, and that is called the vertebral body. Mm-hmm. And out the back there's this kind of, you know, bunch of bits that poke off it. But actually if you if you simplify it, you can actually see that the whole back of it is is an arch. And it's called the vertebral arch. Mm-hmm. Okay. And on that, off that arch, a bunch of spikes poke off the arch. You know, there are some spikes that poke off to the side and they're called the transverse processes. Mm-hmm. There's a spike that pokes off the back and that's called the spinous process. Process just means bony bump. Um, and then there are some bumps that poke off to the top and they're called the superior articular facets. There's some bumps that poke off to the bottom. They're called the inferior articular facets. But basically they all, all of those bits, the, the transverse processes on the side, the spinous process on the back, the, artic- the, the facet joints on the top and bottom, they all sort of uh, come off this arch. They all sit on the arch, right? And, and so basically a vertebra consists of a vertebral body, which is a kind of a kidney-shaped, chunky, you know, almost round thing in the case of the L5. And then there's this arch of bone on the back of it with a bunch of projections coming off it, right, being the processes and the fascia yeah. joints. And so the arch, um, the vertebral arch, surrounds the spinal canal. That's where your spinal cord goes mm-hmm. through, right? And, and if it's the L5, your spinal cord actually doesn't go down all the way to L5. Your spinal cord goes from your brain down to about L1, you know, the top of your lumbar. And after that, uh, so the spinal cord um, is, it, it, it's not really a thing. It's just like all of the, all of the, axons you know the tails of the nerves in your brain 
going down through your your spine, yep. right? And it's wrapped in this sheath of fascia called du- the dura mater, mm-hmm. which means the tough mother. Uh, <laughs> <It's> the t- <laughs> yeah, dura as in durable and mater as in mater and pater, you know, mother and father. Tough so, mother. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Uh, and, and that's- Finally, we've got one with a cool name. <laughs> um, <laughs> tough mother. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, and so the, it's wrapped in the dura mater, which uh, is just a, a sheath of fascia that goes around all of those nerves, that wow. go, nerve tracks that go down your, your spine. And so just think of it, it's, it's kind of like just a lot of wires, electrical wires How or phone wires. Fasc- I just want to know more about the tough mother now. I've never well, heard the, of this. The is- spinal cord itself might be as thick as your index finger maybe, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the, the, the dura mater, I, I couldn't give you a measurement on it. My guess would be it's like half a millimetre thick or so. That's just a guess right. though. But it's tough. Yeah, it's pretty tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, because nerves are somewhat fragile, and so they've got yeah. this kind of tough sheath around them that protects it's them kind from of a, rubbing. I'm thinking about you know, like where you see a whole heap of electrical cords, and there's well, someone's wrapped electrical tape around it yeah. or put a rubber thing around yeah. the outside. Yeah, that's yeah. what it's like. Exactly right. Um, and then so the dura mater kind of ends, not kind of, it ends at about your L1, so the top of your lumbar spine, the the ba- the bottom of your ribs. Yep. You know, it's the 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 join between your middle back and your low back, basically, mm-hmm. um, and so then all of the nerves that were inside the dura mater they continue down, right? Well, not all of them, because some of them went off above that point. Some of them went off to your kidneys or your, mm-hmm. you know, back muscles or whatever. Um, but you know, whatever nerves are still in there, they go down and they they don't have a wrapping around them anymore. They don't is have a sheath. Soon we're going to the quarter equina. Quarter equina, which mm-hmm. just means the horse's tail. Mm. Jeez, Raph, it's starting to sink and it's starting to learn something here, you guys. How about you? <laughs> it turns out repetition, it starts to sink in. This is so awesome. If you look at it, there's a, uh, you know, if you can, if you look up on Google you, in, in images and just type in, you know, quarter equina, mm. um, don't type in quarter equina syndrome mm-hmm. because you don't want to see like horrible pictures of people and stuff, but just quarter equina, it's just quarter equina anatomy or something mm. like that. You'll find an image like a, a side view MRI or something where the, the person's being, you know, sliced in half by the MRI machine uh, visually and you can see like the inside of the spinal canal and you'll see like the, the dura mater it looks like a like a hose coming down right. from the brain to the, the sort of the upper yeah, yep. lumbar spine visualize it. and then it's it's literally looks like a horse's tail it's mm. like strands of hair but they're not hairs they're nerves, nerves yeah. yeah so anyway uh, so inside your uh, inside the vertebral arch Right in between in the in, inside part of the vertebral arch, in between the vertebral arch and the vertebral body, that's where the spinal canal. That's called the spinal canal, mm-hmm. and that's where the 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 spinal cord or the cord equina, you know, is situated. So that that uh, bony section, you know, surrounds and protects those nerve tracts. Gotcha. Um, and so on this on so in between each pair of vertebrae you know, say your L5 and your S1, say, um, there are three joints in between each pair of vertebrae. You know, so in between the L5 and the S1, you know, the S1 being your sacrum, mm-hmm. right, there are three joints. And one of those joints is the intervertebral disc, mm-hmm. right, which which sits directly in between the vertebral body and the sacrum, right? Mm-hmm. Or So if you think about your L4 and L5, right, mm-hmm. just think of two vertebrae, the disc is directly in between the vertebral bodies of the L4 and the L5, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's the same shape as the vertebral bodies. It's kind of a kidney shape. It's just literally mm. like the the ham in the sandwich between the you know those two bodies, and that's one of the three joints. And then behind the the you know the vertebral bodies, there are the, there's a vertebral arch, and 
off those off that arch come you know half a dozen projections there are the transverse processes the bumps that go out to the side that muscles attach to there's the spinous process that goes out to the back and that's where ligaments attach to mm-hmm. and those are the bony bumps you can see and feel in your back when you bend forward i call them the dinosaur dinosaur bones yeah dinosaur bones yeah, yeah. um uh, and then there are those uh sorry there are eight projections and then there are those uh upward projections which are called the superior articular facets or in other words the facet joints and then the lower facet joints and so in between the l4 and l5 and the l5 and the s1 there are two facet joints a left and a right Mm -hmm. between each right so you've got your uh, intervertebral disc and you've got your two facet joints left and right and so if we look at at each vertebra you know there's a from the side view, right, you can imagine the the, the, the vertebral body is this big chunky thing. Then you've got the arch and you've got the, the, the spinous process coming off the back. You've got the transverse process, you know, pointing out towards you. And then you've got this kind of bump at the top called the superior articular facet. Mm-hmm. And then the bump at the bottom called the inferior articular facet. And in between, you know, on the arch, in between the superior articular facet, the facet that's at the top and the inferior articular facet at the bottom, there's a bit of bone, right? It's the bone of the vertebral arch, mm-hmm. right? And that part of the vertebral arch is called the pars, P-A-R-S, oh, yep. interarticularis, right? Pars literally means part, right? And inter means between mm-hmm. and articularis means joints, mm-hmm. right? So that bit of bone on the vertebral arch that is in between the superior facet and the inferior facet is literally called the part between the joints, or in other words, in Latin, the pars articularis. Mm-hmm. And a uh, fracture of the pars interarticularis is called various names. Sometimes it's called a pars interarticularis fracture. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes that. it's called a pars defect. Yep. And sometimes it's called a spondylolysis mm. um, because the spine slips. And the reason it's called that or loosened is because what stops, say, the L5 from sliding forward on the S1, right, are a couple of things. It's the intervertebral disc mm-hmm. stops it. It's also the – and there's a little bit of resistance from the ligaments, you know, the posterior longitudinal ligament, the few other ligaments. Um, but then it's it's the facet joints. You know, the facet joints, the inferior facets of L5 bang into – the superior facets on the sacrum, mm. right, and stop the the L five sliding forwards, right. But if there's a fracture to the pars interarticularis, well, the facet joints can be blocked up there, and because there's a fracture, the pars interarticularis can kind of stretch, and the vertebral body can slide forward. Mm-hmm. So having a spondylolysis is, uh, in some cases, like a precursor to a spondylolisthesis. So it, a spondylolisthesis, in a, in a, said another way, can be a progression of spondylolysis. Ooh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. There you go. Um, okay. So I have, so my first, like I personally had never, ever in my entire life heard of spondylolisthesis. Spondy. I really can't say it. Spondylolisthesis. Help me. Spondylo. Spondylo thesis. List thesis. Bam. Yeah, but I can't repeat it though. This is a problem. Look, <laughs> from here on in, I'm going to say spondy, and that's the one I mean. So, I had never heard of this thing in my life, right? Until, uh, and this is, and I, I've potentially talked 
a little bit about this story before because it's what actually led me to discovering Pilates because not only had I not ever heard of a spondy before, I'd also never heard of Pilates before really. Like it just hadn't been on my radar. So this would have been, oh, it's over 10 years ago now. 11, 12-ish years ago, I reckon I was early 30s. So early 30s. What's, um, what's that in Pilates years? <laughs> I still don't know how to answer that. I need to think on that one. But I was in my early 30s, okay? I was mega fit. I was actually had just started studying a Cert 3 uh, in personal training. And then I was going to go on to the Cert 4, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was at the gym with a personal trainer and I was doing kettlebells for the first time. Kettlebell swing, what I know now is it was just a little too heavy, little too much for my tissue capacity at the time. I wish I knew that then, but I didn't. And I felt a intense, acute pain in my lower back in the moment. By the time I got home, I was trying to put my makeup on to go to work. I was working a desk job at that point and I was literally crippled over. Like I couldn't stand up straight, got to work, was in just intolerable pain and the freak out continued from there. I was sent to osteos. I was sent to doctor. I was the works. They sent me straight off to get um, an MRI. Again, not the best of ideas. Um, with what we know now. But anyway, so they got the MRI and the MRI was sent to the physio to read for me. So I went to the physio. (sighs) So there I am still this, you know, fit young thing, but with acute low back pain at this point and freaked out, really quite scared. It's hurting for me to do up my shoelaces. Uh, I can't contribute to the housework at home. I had housemates at the time. Any, basically any flexion, kind of anything hurt. Um, Plus also I was very stressed about it and what it meant and etc. So I tell you what didn't help with my stress levels was then for those scans to be read. The first thing was I had a disc bulge, said I had a disc bulge at L5S1. And what we know now is meh, sure, maybe it could have, maybe it could have happened during that incident at the gym or maybe it was already there and it was a muscle strain or something I got when, you know, it, who knows? It, we don't know. We Literally, that's the answer. Who knows? However, the answer I was given was you have, by doing that particular movement, you have given yourself a disc bulge. And not only do you have a disc bulge, actually, turns out you've got spondy as well. Now, here's how it escalated. So I'm like, what's that? And he's like, well, look here, look closely. And he showed me and it was at, it's at the, the L1 something something slow. And he said, see, see how your spine, it actually doesn't align. It's sheared. And I'm just there going, what the actual fuck? Like I am fucked. Like that was what was going on in my head. Like I'm fucked. And what he said to me was, because you have the spondy, that has predisposed you to get this disc bulge. That spondy will actually now predispose you to further injury throughout your life. I don't want you doing anything high impact. You're never to do that movement that you did. Your body will remember and you will injure yourself. I'm I'm not making this shit up, you guys. I hope everyone's just there like with wide eyeballs going, are you kidding me? A healthcare provider said this. He said this. Um, And you can't run. I loved running. Everyone knows I love running. Running's Running's my happy place. 
You're not to run. You're not to lift weights. Um, guess what, though? I was allowed to do Pilates. Funnily enough, he had a reformer in his office. <laughs> I'm like, right, I can do a reformer, but I can't do that. I'm not to do any flexion. It was, it was, it was intense. So the flow-on effect of that was, for me, I had, I got no extra explanation about what it was, just that my spine was inherently unstable because it was not lined up, right? It was sheared uh, and that I was predisposed to injury if I did any of the things I enjoyed doing. Mm. Uh, I didn't run or lift weights for over a year after that. And, you know, the only thing that got me doing those two things again is because I'm an extremely stubborn person and I didn't, I didn't have any more evidence. I just went... This just seems a bit bullshit to me. Like, what? how am I going to live my life like this? Are you kidding me? I'm in my early 30s and this person's saying I can't do these things? Fuck it. So I just started doing it again. And then I forgot all about it. I forgot I even had the damn thing. <laughs> and now I know the evidence which we're going to talk about. But but I hope you guys are hearing this and and the effect that, you know, these nocebic. Intense nocebo. <laughs> intense nocebo. Um had on me and and the effect it had on my life and the effect it had on me doing the things I loved. Me doing the things I loved was going for a run, was being able to lift some weights, mm. was exercising. So it wasn't just nocebo, which of course is when you think something's going to get worse or hurt, so it does, um, but you know, creating the expectation of pain basically. It, it, yeah. was, it was also taking away your a lot of your most meaningful activities in life. Yeah. It's some part of your identity. Yeah, it still upsets me that that happened. Um, and, you know, I learned a lot from that. Um, and I'm just so glad now that, you know, and it's funny though, Raph, I will say every now and then, I reckon that he noceived me, noceboed me so good. Every now and then when I'm doing something and I get, like I do get this kind of recurrent weird sensation-y kind of pain down near my sacrum. It's just a thing. I, I try to just ignore it, but it comes now and then and it just creeps, just creeps into my mind mm. that it's the spondy. It does creep in there even now with what I know. So let's let's give me some, uh, let's let's get rid of that nocebo. Well, kids at home, <laughs> you know, don't, don't nocebo your clients. <laughs> don't nocebo your clients. It's so, like, it's really, like, it really, yeah. So we're going to go into the, ev like, what does the evidence say? But I reckon before we do that, let's have a break. Yeah, I feel like another coffee. Let's have a coffee. <laughs> While Chloe's ducked out to make a coffee, I just want to quickly mention that if you've got questions, if you've got things floating around your head, question marks, maybe somebody said something at work and you're like, not really clear on what that means, but I'm kind of not confident to ask because I don't want to look kind of foolish in front of people. Well, come ask me and um, you won't look foolish. You'll be a hero for asking awesome questions. And even the questions that you think are like, maybe that's a really stupid question. Those are the questions you get the biggest gold stars for asking. So come ask me. We've got a weekly Q&A. It's live. It's called Stop Faking It and Really Know Your Stuff. There's always a bunch of great people online. There's a, always a great conversation and uh, you leave you know, wiser, empowered and uh, feeling a sense of solidarity with like-minded folk. So I'd love to see you. You're all, all, all coffee pepped back up, mm, Raph. That's much How better. many coffees today? Is this actually, are you drinking more coffee than usual? Uh, no, I've uh, just, just had the same as usual today too. Two. Mm. So you have one when you first wake up? Yep. Actually, like straight away? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. That's like the first thing you do. You put your, you put your coffee 
maker on. Yeah, I've got the coffee maker on a timer, actually. It turns on Shut up. just before I get up, yeah. Do you, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, I love that. Yeah. So you wake up and you got coffee good to go. Yeah. Oh, you're living the dream. I am living my so, best life. And then, oh, are you drinking I'm tea now? I'm actually drinking tea right now. Okay, yeah. that's what was throwing me because mm. I thought it was quite late in the I afternoon. I wouldn't drink coffee this coffee. time of day. It's what here in um, – Pilates Elephants land, it's two o'clock on the Pilates Elephants clock, two in the yeah. afternoon. Um, if I drink a coffee now, I'd struggle to sleep tonight. Yeah, right. Yeah. Whereas Chloe Bunter over here can drink coffee until midnight and still go to bed. <laughs> yeah, blessed. <laughs> if only I was blessed in that way, I'd be happy. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, so before the break, uh, we spoke about there's two different sorts of spondy and that's as much as I'm going to... One's called spondylolysis. Yes. And it's a fracture mm-hmm. of the pars interarticularis, which is the part of the vertebral arch, mm-hmm. which is the back part of the vertebra, mm-hmm. that lives in between the superior facet and the inferior facet. Mm-hmm. And uh, one is called spondylolisthesis, mm-hmm. which is a forward slippage of the vertebral body. Mm-hmm. Which the, is the one below it. I have. Uh-huh. Um, so... I guess there's a couple of questions here that would be great to sort of delve into. What causes it? Uh, what makes it worse? Does it get worse? Uh, like, it, should we delve into that before yeah. we? Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, there seems, it, you know, like most things, when you say what causes it, mm. the answer is like probably a combination of things mm-hmm. that contribute to different people in different combina- different. Um, percentages. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a significant genetic uh, contribution in that uh, one of the risk factors for spondylolisthesis is a first degree relative with a spondylolisthesis. So potentially my mum or dad has one? Potentially. Um, I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't ask them. Uh, I would. I'd love to know Sebo, my mum and dad (laughs) and freak them the fuck out. No, I will not be asking them. Um, Neither of them have back pain. (laughs) Right. So it it seems to to run somewhat in families and that um, might be related to, you know, basically genetic, you know, variation in the the thickness of the vertebral arch might be a little thinner in some people or whatever. I don't know, you know. People, the researchers are just you know guessing. That, you know that dimples, you know, it's really cute. Did you know that dimples are genetic? I looked into dimples and they're actually a defect, but they're so cute. What's the defect so about as, them? Well, it's a genetic, you read about it, the science is, so it's a, it's a hole in the muscle. Mm. Yeah. So you, technically you're not meant to You've have that. a cute hole in your muscle. That hole, yeah. <laughs> thank you. So, <laughs> it doesn't so, sound as good that way. No, it doesn't, does it? But dimples, so all my family have dimples. I've actually got dimples on my mum's side. Um, all my cousins have dimples. Like we all kind of look like little carbon copies of each other. Like you could put us all together and you're like, oh, well, they're blatantly all related. And then on I my- can't help looking at your cheeks now. My dad's <laughs> side, we should see my, my brother Luke's got the cutest dimples. I'm sure he loves that as a 40 something year old man. Look at your dimples. And uh, my dad's got dimples. You them between your thumb and forefinger? Well, now that I know it's a hole, I've been like <laughs> kind of a bit more curious about it. So isn't that interesting? Mm. So I'm pretty stoked to get that mm. little bit of a genetic defect. Mm. <laughs> They're cute. Well, it's probably not a genetic defect now because, I mean, I'm just speculating here, mm. but I imagine, you know, most people would consider that they're attractive, you know, right. dimples, in our culture anyway. Yeah. And so there's probably some degree of sexual selection for them. Like people with dimples, you know, find mates more easily and therefore have greater reproductive success. So <laughs> it's probably not a defect. It's probably a genetic uh uh, adaptations, like it's probably advantageous. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Probably selected for, is my guess. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Wow. Okay. Oh, that's so interesting. There you go. 
oh, well, we're a family with dimples. Mm. Okay, so maybe we're a family with dimples and spondy. Mm. Who knows? Mm. I'm not going mm. to mm. ask. Maybe the same gene that predisposes you to spondylolisthesis also predisposes you to dimples. <laughs> we're being wildly non-scientific Spo- right wildly now. Specula- wildly speculative. Yeah. <laughs> wildly. <laughs> Please do not quote us on that. <laughs> Um, so okay, uh, yeah, so it so, could be genetic. So some component of genetic, but yeah. it certainly doesn't explain, you know, all of it. Um, it seems to be relatively common to onset in childhood uh, huh. between the ages of, I think, five and seven or something like that. And uh, so uh, there are – and so it seems to be more common in sports that involve, like, extreme loading of the spine in extreme postures, things like, you know, gymnastics and um, – uh, weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting, right. things like that. Um, but you know, then again, a whole bunch of injuries are more common in those. Cr- yeah, you know, like when true. you put your body through extreme, yeah, <laughs> extreme range and and load. Yeah, yeah at high speed. Yeah, it's like yeah, you're going to get injured more often. Yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, so that, that's that's what we know about it. Okay. Um, there and there are a few types. There, are, you know, there are some. Sometimes it can be caused by pathology. So if people have, for instance, like you know, um, some kind of um, some particular degenerative disease of the spine predisposed to it. Um, uh, yeah, there are, there are a few different you know causes, but the the uh, the main the main thing is we don't really know, and it's kind of complex, and it's 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 there's part genetic. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And what about the the fracture? Uh, so a, a pars interarticularis fracture, mm-hmm. aka pars defect, mm-hmm. aka spondylolysis. The the spine became Looser. Um, Spondylolysis. Yeah. Bam. Had to slow it down. Almost need applause for that. Had to, had to, had to, had to slow it down. That's what <laughs> I was trying to say it too fast. Yeah. Well, that's uh, we know from uh, principles of motor learning that if you slow down a motor skill, which pronouncing spondylolysis is a motor skill, yeah, you know, with your tongue and lips and glottis and whatever, um, that if you slow it down but maintain the rhythm, it's still the same skill, but it's easier to execute because there's something called the speed accuracy trade-off. So, the, you know, and everyone knows this intuitively, like the, the slower you go, the easier it is to be accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're trying to draw something really precisely or, or write something Oh, really it was neat, like you, me trying to write up the order last night on the way. I'm like, calm down, Chloe, because you're not even going to read that. Right. Slow it down. Hmm. But, yeah, keep yeah. the rhythm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so spondylolysis, uh, again, seems to be like super common in lots of different athletes, uh, in different sports. Uh, it's pretty, it's very common in pain-free adults at all ages. Um, and so we don't really know what causes it again. Mm -hmm. Is it one of those things that if we were doing those, you know, studies where they do the mass scans of, you know, populations, right, and we find that a large percentage have changes in discs and spine, et cetera, right, just due to Mm -hmm. natural Mm -hmm. ageing, la, 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 Mm -hmm. um, and are pain-free, like Mm -hmm. asymptomatic, is this the sort of thing we would see there as well? Uh, so I don't have figures on spondylolysis mm-hmm. for that. Uh, there may have been research done on that. I'm not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for spondylolisthesis, uh, we do have that data. And in 2015, there was a study done called Systematic Liter- Liter- Literature Review. <laughs> oh, no. What have I done to him? <laughs> he's, caught, he's caught what I've got. <laughs> Systematic Literature Review of Imaging Features of Spinal Degeneration in Asymptomatic Population. So in other words... 
people that find stuff on their MRI mm-hmm. that have no history of back pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they looked at things like disc degeneration, disc bulge, disc prolapse, annular fissures, degenerate, you know, stuff. And one of the things they looked at was spondylolisthesis. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that spondylolisthesis, uh, you know, 3% of pain-free 20-year-olds have it and 5% of pain-free 30-year-olds, 8% of pain-free 40-year-olds, and it goes up a few percent, you know, basically every decade. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to 80, pain-free 80-year-olds, you're up to 50% of pain-free 80-year-olds. Wow. Okay. Half. Holy yeah. moly. Um, and what they found was uh, it, the 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 prevalence of uh, of spondylolisthesis was not more likely in people. Ah, sorry, apologies. There was a sec. So that that was that study, right? It's yeah. it's highly prevalent in in well, not highly prevalent, and but it's, it's going up with age. Yeah, increases it, it's with slightly age. Slightly prevalent in in young adults and increases a couple of percent a decade. But then accelerate, you know, like the the increase accelerates in the later decades of life beyond kind of fifty. Um, but till by the time you get to eighty years old, you know, half of pain free people and pain free is defined as never had a history of back pain, right? So right. lifelong, no history of back pain. Wow, fifty percent of people at eighty years old have it. Um, and then there's a second study by the same research group from 2015, Brinjikji et al., um, which is called, uh, and again, they think of these really sexy. Titles. This one's called. <laughs> this isn't going to be sexy. <laughs> this is called MRI findings of disc degeneration are more prevalent in adults with low back pain than in asymptomatic controls, a systematic review, and meta analysis. <laughs> pretty dry. It's pretty dry. <laughs> I hope the findings are sexy. Anyway, we'll um, we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, and so basically, what they did, uh, this is the same research group, and they so they looked that that other study I just mentioned, they looked at pain free people and looked at okay, how many of pain free people have these things? I'm still shocked that people could go through their life with never having a sore back. Yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? I couldn't. I'm like, wow, I just, I just kind of, I must admit, I see, and I think maybe because I'm a Pilates instructor too, and yeah. almost everyone comes to Pilates at some point because they've had a sore back or got a sore yeah. back or, yeah. you know, and I, I just couldn't imagine have gone through life with never having a sore back. Yeah. Good on you. Yeah. Lucky you. Wow. <laughs> um, and so in this particular, in this systematic review, it's, it's not a study, it, it reviewed all of the studies in this area. Uh, in this field of research. And so they looked at studies that looked at asymptomatic people and they, uh, people with no history of back pain. And they also looked at studies that had, that looked at people with a history of back pain. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the look, they, the question they tried to answer was, you know, are these things disc bulge, disc degeneration, spondylolysis, spondylolisthesis, facet joint arthritis, whatever, are these things more or less or the same amount, you know, common? in people with back pain as in people without back pain. Mm. Uh, And in relation to spondylolysis, what they found is it is more common in people with back pain. Okay, so, and that is the one that's the fracture. That's the pars interarticularis fracture. Yes. Yes. So uh, people with back, you know. So it's a fracture. So sorry, Raph. I feel like when, when we think about fractures, I know like when I think about a fracture, right, I think about, let's say I fractured my arm or whatever, it heals. Yes. This doesn't heal. Uh, we see it sometimes progresses. Sometimes, as it progresses, as in you know, gets more fractured. Right. Sometimes doesn't progress, as in just stays the same, and right. sometimes heals. Hmm. And so, you know, I'm just speculating here, but I would guess that maybe uh, is kind of uh, in some people at least maybe it's kind of like a stress fracture. 
where it's, you know, repetitive loading that's beyond the tolerance of the bone. Yep. And so if you keep doing the activity, it doesn't get a chance to heal. Got it. You know, but if you give it a bit of a rest, it'll heal up and Bob's your uncle. With you. Okay. And yeah. it'd be hard to give your spine a bit of a rest. Well, if you're into gymnastics or weightlifting or whatever, you might need to take six weeks off. I see. Yeah. That, you know, and if, you know, if you're, if, if you're, if you're a hardcore weightlifter, like not, I'm not talking about someone at the gym, I'm talking about an Olympic weightlifter yeah, yeah. that, uh, you know, you are talking about, you know, over a year of diligent training, five hours a day, six days a week, you might add, you know, two kilos to your, to the amount that you can clean and press. Right. And then if you take six weeks off training, you probably lose 15 kilos. Right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's amazing how quick you lose it yeah. too, isn't it? It's yeah. like, but uh, you get it back fairly yeah, quickly. No, I, yeah. I would agree. I'd yeah. agree. I've yeah. already going up substantially with yeah. my leg press, but I'll tell you what, it was confronting when I went back to them after a substantial break yeah. and I was like, oh, this is half of what I was doing, literally yeah. half. But that's a real phenomenon, getting it back. It's called muscle memory uh, and that's not what most people think about when they mean when they say muscle memory, like I can still do this skill is what most people mean. Yes. But when researchers talk about muscle memory, what they mean is your muscles remember being strong. So if you do strength training, you get really strong and then you stop doing strength training and you, you know, for a period of weeks or months and you get less strong, um, then you start strength training again. You get back to how strong you were before much quicker than the first time when you started out from scratch. Yeah. There's some kind of genetic memory in there or, or epigenetic memory in there. That's so cool. Yeah. So once you've been strong, it's much easier to get back to being strong than if you've never been strong Cause before. Because it's so interesting because when I went to the gym the other day, I could add on actually more, like much more than I yeah. thought. And I was doing it just a little bit because I was thinking, oh, what? And I had to keep putting more on. And I was like, this is cool. Yeah. Anyway, awesome. we digress. Yeah. We digress. So, Okay. That makes sense. So, so that's the fracture. So, so, so there's all, a, everything I just said there about yeah. the, the progression and the stress fracture, that's all basically just my speculation, right? So I don't yeah. have research on that. But that's basically yeah. reasoning from first principles. That kind of is how I would think about it. Okay. So this study shows that there is a bit more of a correlation between pain and having that the, the past fracture. Right. So, as opposed to, for instance, the, the sponder, the spondy that I have. Right. So, so if, if you, if you came to me and you were my client, right, and you said, I've got this back pain and here's my MRI report mm-hmm. and it says I've got a spondylo spondylolysis, you know, a passing triarticularis fracture. Mm-hmm. And I I looked at the location on, you know, the passing triarticularis fracture was say at your L45, left L45, whatever, mm-hmm. wherever it was. And, and then I looked at you and said, okay, can you show me where your back pain is? Can you point on your body where your back pain is? And you pointed to your left L45, right? I would be thinking, huh, maybe those, maybe the spondylolysis is related to your back pain, right? Um, because we know that they can be related to back pain. But if the scan report said the spondylolysis is at your left L4-5, and I said, show me where your back pain is, and you pointed to your right L1-2 or something, you know, I'd be thinking like, all right, well, it's probably just an incidental finding because we know that pain-free people do have these findings. They're just more common in people with pain, mm-hmm. right? So just the fact that you've got it doesn't mean that that's what's causing your pain. Mm-hmm. And particularly if the symptoms in a different spot, which often we see when clients come along, is like, yeah, they've got this finding and they've got a pain, but the pain and the finding aren't in the same spot, 
Mm. Um, so that would be that's that's how I would approach that. Mm-hmm. Um, and but with when it comes to spondylolisthesis, the forward slippage. Mm-hmm. Spondylo means spine, and listhesis means uh, slip, mm-hmm. slide. Um, uh, what they found in this meta-analysis was that spondylolisthesis was not more common in people with back pain than in people without back pain. Um, and so they found, in fact, no association between whether you had spondylolisthesis and whether you had back pain or not. Okay, so one more time for the people at Backcraft. <laughs> Say that again. Repeat that again nice and loud, so, I reckon. So according to Brinjikji et al., um, 2015, uh Spondylolisthesis, the forward slippage of one vertebra, the one that I've got, one, mm-hmm. uh, is not more common in people with back pain. Yeah. So, um, interesting, huh? It is interesting. It mm. is interesting. Okay. So, so if we think back to what my physio, my nocebic physio at the time, said to me, and basically, and I, I still remember, like, you can't get more nocebic than someone pointing out to you a freaking the imaging of your spine, like, you know, and, and showing yeah, you exactly yeah. where the slippage mm. is because it's pretty intense to see a visual representation of your spine like that mm. and that you, and you, could, you could genuinely see that it wasn't lining up mm-hmm. and basically saying to me, okay, well, you now have, for want of a better word, a vulnerable spine. Mm-hmm. So you I can should- I a lot of better words. Yeah, he did, probably didn't even need to mention the bloody thing in the first place. But anyway. About um, robust, awesome, strong. Robust, awesome, strong. I, <laughs> right. The fact remains Do a pull-up everyone, by the way. <laughs> Pardon? Do a pull-up everyone, by the way. Caged lion. <laughs> Do a push-up. Um, we know that we know the listeners are waiting for it. Um, okay, wrap. But let's think about this. So the 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 fact remains, right, that my spine does not line up. I've mm-hmm, got mm-hmm. two vertebrae that that don't line up. Correct, right? So if we just like take all of those like studies out of my head for a moment, blah blah mm-hmm, blah, and mm-hmm. we just think about that structurally, mm-hmm. would it? And particularly to the layperson, would it not? kind of makes sense that potentially my spine isn't as quote unquote stable or quote unquote strong or structurally as strong mm-hmm. as someone's someone who doesn't have it right where it all lines up what do you, I don't like like well, I feel like this is intuitively a, that kind of makes sense yeah, doesn't it yeah but it just turns out that our intuition about these things is freaking terrible it's not really good yeah I mean we talked about this a while ago, I think, when we talked about Lamar Gant, the first human to ever deadlift five times his body weight. With the scully? Severe scoliosis. Mm-hmm. You know, like there, there's just countless examples of, of humans that are gotcha. not in ideal alignment who are just fucking unbelievably strong and just do feats of strength that just regular elite athletes mm-hmm. couldn't even dream of. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and then just go to freaking YouTube and type in like, you know, amputee CrossFit or something, right? And there's there's people with no fucking arms and legs doing fucking muscle ups, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm also thinking, you know, when you're confronted with like an image like that, uh, or you're looking at like a spine, you know, a, um, a flexi spine or something, what we're not 
visualizing is all the beautiful connective tissue around it, right? So when it's not kind of sitting just directly on top of each other, you're like, oh, what's going to happen? Is it just going to slip and slip and slip? And what happens all of a sudden you're like, Mm. you know, like that's the imagery, right? Uh, Well, uh, yeah, that is the imagery. Yeah. Um, and and I remember feeling like like when this was pointed out to me, I remember feeling like that. I remember feeling very vulnerable about my body's capabilities. Mm. Well, let me throw some more science at you. This is a paper from uh, love it when you throw science. In fact, I've got our breathe <laughs> our breathe mug in front of me, and it very clearly says we use science and data. Ah, well, just as well then. <laughs> um, this is from this is from two thousand and three. It's uh, William J. Butler et al. And it's called The Natural History of Spondylolysis and Spondylolisthesis, mm-hmm. a 45-year follow-up evaluation. Whoa. So natural history is just 45 years um, is amazing. In, in, uh, in any kind of disease or, or condition. It's just basically what happens if we leave it alone, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, for instance, if you have a cold, you know, common cold, the natural history is you probably sniffle and sneeze for a couple of weeks and then it goes away by itself, mm-hmm. right? Your immune system kicks its ass. So that's the natural history of a cold. And so uh, what's the natural history of spondylolisthesis and spondylolysis? Um, and so what they did was they uh, did a prospective study. So they enrolled, uh, I think, 30 people in 1955. Oh, sorry. A study of 500 first grade children in 1955 Right, they did. They did X-rays. That's when you could just go around to the schools X-raying people. You know, <laughs> there were so many wacky things you could do in 1955. So they just went around and X-rayed 500 first-grade children, and um, <laughs> what they found, and then they, you know, a certain number of them had pars defects, is what they call them in this study, but it's a spondylolysis, and then a certain number of them had spondylolisthesis, uh-huh. and then they followed them up in. 1998 or something like that, 2000, whatever it was, yeah. um, and uh, x-rayed them again. Can you imagine these people getting an email out of the blue like 45 years later? This <laughs> you, is so quirky. You might not remember me, but when you were six, you, we had took an x-ray of your spine at school. You know? <laughs> Actually, it was my, my father who did that, and uh, now I'm carrying on the research tradition. Anyway, I, I don't know the history. I'm just making it up. But what they found was, um, Love it. Uh, quote, from their results, no subject with a PARS defect was lost to follow-up evaluation once a lesion was identified. So they they tracked down every single one of these people and followed them up with an MRI 45 years later. Incredible. Um, subjects with unilateral defects never experienced slippage over the course of the study. Wow. Progression of spondylolisthesis slowed with each decade. There was no association of slip progression and low back pain. There was no statistically significant difference between the study population and those of the general population for their um, pain and disability. What more do you want? What more? Like, that's just... (laughs) It's incredible. Could we send that to my old physio? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, shout out to your old physio. Maybe uh, that person has, you know, become evidence-based. I really hope so. Because 12 years ago, I, was, I wasn't evidence-based. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I agree. I, I might have said that to, to you 12 years ago. I hope oh, I wouldn't have. But. Oh, look, and him and I had a great therapeutic alliance. I trusted every word he said, really liked him, went in there diligently for my, you know, manual gave, therapy. Gave five-star Google review. And yeah, I thought he was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> to my later years that I've gone, oh, man, that wasn't cool. Mm. Um, wow, that study's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, there are a couple of others. And quite fascinating that everyone was still could be found and was alive and well and yeah, all of yeah. those things. There's another one here from 1994, radiographic correlations in adult symptomatic spondylolisthesis, a long-term follow-up study by Verta et al. What they found was uh, the mean degree of uh, slippage at baseline was 34%, so that, you know, the, 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 the L5, in your case, had mm-hmm. slipped forward 34% of its diameter, uh-huh. right, so one-third, mm-hmm. um, and the mean progression of the slip during the observation time, which was 17 years, right, was 6.1%, not 6.1 additional percent, but 6.1% of how much it had slipped already, right, so it's, you know, 2%, 3%, Right, okay, it's just a little bit. Yeah. The level of progression of the slip instability of the osteolisthetic segment, our radiological non-union of spinal fusion did not correlate with either the pain index or the activities of daily living index. So in other words, how much it's like some of them slipped, some of them didn't, right? Some of them slipped more, some of them slipped less, but how, whether it slipped and how much it slipped had no correlation with whether they had pain or how how able they were to just get on and do their normal life activity. Mm-hmm. Um, no marked were radiological differences were seen between those actively employed and those pensioned. Right, So some people were on disability pensions mm-hmm. for back pain and some people were just working full-time as whatever, tram conductors or office people or whatever, and uh, there was no difference in their x-rays mm-hmm. between those two groups. So there was maybe a lot of nocebo going <laughs> in one group and not in the other group. Mm-hmm. Um, the degree of slip correlated positively with the pain index, R equals 0.31, which is a small to moderate correlation. Yeah. Right? Um, and so that's not the how far – that's not how much uh, it – oh, sorry, that – yeah, that's, so that's basically how far it slipped forward was slightly to moderately – correlated with pain with mm-hmm. back pain and we conclude that the degree of slip and spinal fusion operation are slightly associated with the prognosis of ismic spondylolisthesis whereas other radiological variables of our study showed no association so um in that particular study they found that there were there was a slight association between back pain and spondylolisthesis whereas the brinjicchi one i quoted to you before yeah was a much bigger study. I was going to say, what was the recent. size? Yeah. yeah. And, well, the Brinjicchi one would have included that one. Because it was systematic the other, review, wasn't right, it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. So, um, and uh, then there are just a couple of other ones um, that have looked at, uh, you know, because we tend to, by default, we tend to default to thinking of spondylolisthesis as a an injury or a defect yes. that needs to be repaired. Correct. Um, and so we think, okay, what's the best way to either protect that uh, or it's repair interesting, it? It's interestingly interesting, sorry, that you say repair because the way it was always explained to me and the way it was explained to me was not – was like you've got this now, this mm-hmm. is your jam, like mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do about it except you need to be more careful because you are now predisposed to mm-hmm. injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never heard of it in the terms of something to repair. Oh, yeah, we, we do spinal fusion surgery on people. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So there are a few different surgeries they do. They okay. do it like a decompression where they'll sort of cut out bits that are in the way or whatever. But the, the right, main one that like they – shave off some of the – Shave off the bone. back part of the vertebral body or gotcha. whatever if it's impinging on the spine. Uh-huh. 
Um, but the main, I think the most common surgery is uh, spinal fusion where they basically bolt those two vertebrae together, like literally bolt them yes. with, with actual bolts. Yes. Um, I've had quite a few clients with, with spinal yeah, fusions. So now those two vertebrae, you know, say in case mm-hmm. of L4-5 or L5-S1, whatever, are just effectively one solid unit that doesn't bend or mm-hmm. twist or anything like that. Um, and so they, they're, um, there's a systematic review and meta-analysis from 2016 called Zoo et al. called Surgical versus Non-Surgical Treatment uh-huh. for High-Grade Spondylolisthesis in Children and Adolescents. And when they say high-grade, um, there's a, a, a scale, you know, and, and if you've studied spondylolisthesis even in sort of a superficial way, um, you know, most people have been exposed to the idea of like a 25% forward slippage is a grade one, 50% is grade two, 75% is grade three, and 100% is grade four. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's basically what they're talking about. And so high grade would be like a grade three, you know. Uh, So, uh, and so this was a systematic review of uh, surgical versus non-surgical treatment. So basically, you know, what happens if we give them a spinal fusion versus if we basically just don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and what they found was, quote, because of the preponderance of uncontrolled case series, low quality evidence indicates the quality of life and progression of slip was no significant difference between surgery and non-operative group. Non-operative patients had no radiological progression of their slip during the 18-month follow-up period. So uh, and this is a systematic review from 2016. It's the most recent one available. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, what it says is basically the evidence in this area is really poor quality mm-hmm. and we can't say that there's any difference in outcome for people who have spinal fusion versus people who don't. Ah, gosh. Gosh, we hear this a lot, don't we? Like in different parts of the body mm. and you just mm. think, ah, oh, man, those po-. – like imagine going through spinal fusion surgery. Mm. 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 Huge. Yeah. And that the outcome may be just the same as – Right. So not doing anything now. I, now, uh, there, you know, I'd like to kind of just put a little caveat here and say, um, and this is not based on research that I've read, but it's it's just kind of based on the anatomy and, and first principles. That okay, so spondylolisthesis, where the vertebra slips forward, you know, is in according to Brinjicci et al. It's not associated with low back pain, right? So some people have low back pain and no spondy. Some people have back pain and spondy. Some people have spondy and back pain. Some people have spondy and no back pain. It's like, it's just not associated. But when you, the, the, what, I think what researchers, uh, you know, and clinicians are also kind of concerned about is, well, if the vertebra slips, you know, very far forward, that narrows the, the, the spinal canal, right? Mm-hmm. So there's less room for the quarter equina you know, if those nerve tracts. Gotcha. And so then if you then, you know, take that spinal canal that's narrowed because there's a forward slippage of the vertebra and this and the, the, the vertebral arch, you know, slips forward a bit or, or mm-hmm. whatever, and then you, you know, bend or twist or whatever, well, that narrows the spinal canal gotcha. even more. So now the nerves might get impinged or irritated or, or whatever, mm-hmm. and that wouldn't cause back pain. That would cause symptoms in your leg. Right, because right. those those nerves that exit the spine are kind of L five, S one, S two, whatever. They go down your leg to your foot, um, and so you might. That's yeah, basically your sciatic nerve. Yep. Okay, and so you might get you know pain, or weakness, or numbness, or altered sensation, or you know just weird shit happening in your leg. Um, if there was a neural compromise, mm-hmm. you know, at, related to that spondylolisthesis, and so 
Uh, again, like I said, I haven't read any literature on this, but if I had a client with a spondylolisthesis, a high grade, like a grade, you know, three or four spondylolisthesis, and they had significant leg symptoms, that's when I would be, you know, a bit more cautious about um, movements that provoked their leg symptoms. Okay. Um, so if, you know, if they were doing a back bear, if I just, if, you know, if you were my client and you had a spondylolisthesis and you're L5S1 and you would do, I would be like, do you ever get leg symptoms? And you would say- well, you want we'll me just, to say yes? Yeah, well, do, do you, get, honestly. Are you asking no, me? No, in reality, do you get leg never symptoms? Never, ever. I'd be like, okay, great, we don't care about the spondylolisthesis, yeah. so let's work out. But see, yeah. I would never say to some, I would never identify as to something, like if, you know, if, a, if an instructor or something said to me, have you got anything going on? I would never, ever, ever say my spondylolisthesis because- Right. So, so I would, if, if someone didn't have leg symptoms, yeah. I'd be utterly un, uninterested in this spondylolisthesis. Gotcha. It's just not a thing, right? Yes. But if you came to me and said, look, hey, I get this, you know, buzzing sensation down my leg and I can't feel my right big toe, right? Especially when I do backbends and I've got this grade three spondylolisthesis, <laughs> right. then I would start to think, okay, you know, if we're doing backbend and you can't feel your right foot, maybe we should back it off a little uh-huh. bit, you know, like yeah. ease, ease out of that position yep. and and find a position that doesn't make your right foot go numb, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. that would be that would be when I would, I would, you know, pay some attention to that if mm-hmm. particular movements or positions aggravated leg symptoms. Okay, so the advice that, that I was given and that I've seen on different, you know, you Google it and spondy and up comes, you know, the spine spine web page on something something and the nocebo spine the, the nocebo <laughs> should I read out some things from the no, nocebo don't, 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 don't. Don't. okay well <laughs> basically it's don't do anything don't do high anything, it's yeah. it's don't do any high impact yeah. don't do heavy weight lifting yeah. uh, don't do gymnastics yeah. um don't 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 yeah. don't don't Strengthen your core. No shit. Yeah. That's what this one page says. Strengthen your core. Keep physically active. So I'm down with keeping physically active. Nice. Tick. Yep. But why can't I do the other things? Yeah, well, I think, I, I don't know why they wrote that, but mm-hmm. my guess would be that they're worried about, you know, progression of the of the spondylolisthesis. And there's no evidence to suggest that more active people have more progression. So mm-hmm. I think that's an unfounded fear. Mm-hmm. I th- don't think, you know, that's, I don't think that's worth considering Mm -hmm. but i think you know like i said just a moment ago i think the uh, the only time that i would it would be a consideration if Mm -hmm. someone had a spondylolisthesis is if there were significant leg symptoms that were aggravated by particular movements or positions right right? i would i would you know ease you know do less of those movements or positions Mm -hmm. you know not go to full end range or whatever yeah because i wouldn't want to aggravate those leg symptoms because that's a sign that you're irritating nerves right gotcha probably not a good plan Mm mm-hmm but but if you had a grade three spondy and you had no leg symptoms, I'd be like, fine, back bends, mm. forward bends, whatever, do you know, running. And to be honest, I can't remember what grade mine. Who cares? Is. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, <yeah>. so, <laughs> I'm sure I was told. I yeah, just can't remember. So we, yeah. So there's no good evidence that uh, surgery makes it better. There's no good evidence that it progresses. There's no good evidence associated with pain. Um, but you know, just again, not from research, but just from thinking about the anatomy. If there was leg symptoms, I would be a little bit more cautious. And also, there's no good evidence about physiotherapy. So when we um, talk about like exercise, you know, like they don't often they don't do it. They don't use the word exercise. They use the word physiotherapy, which is exercise plus massage plus manipulation therapy, plus yeah. whatever the heck else they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the only study we've got on that is, uh, or the only systematic review we've got is 2003. Um, 
McNeely et al. Systematic Review of Physiotherapy for Spondylolysis and Spondylolisthesis. And what they found was uh, basically, uh, let me see, in this review, very few prospective studies were found that examined the efficacy of physiotherapy on the topic and therefore few conclusions can be made and further research is warranted. In other words, we've got no freaking clue yeah. if exercise, manual therapy, whatever, etc., uh, is good, bad or indifferent for spondylolisthesis and there is no freaking way we can say this particular exercise is good, bad or indifferent for spondylolisthesis. Right. So we don't even know if exercise in general is right. good. But we right. know that exercise in general is good for... People in general. People in general, yes. right? <laughs> right. So, so probably exercise. So can you no, so this tried to address the question of like, can you quote fix, you know, right. spondylolisthesis? With physiotherapy. And the answer is no freaking clue. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think my favourite study has been the 45-year study from today. Yeah. I really I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed thinking about that. Um, okay. So... Don't nocebo your clients. Yeah, don't nocebo them. Get them moving. Yeah, like moving. always with intolerable, you yeah. know. And and if they've got back pain and the spondylolisthesis, it's probably just unrelated. It's almost certainly unrelated. And if they've got back pain and a spondylolysis and the pain and the spondylolysis are both in the same location, it may be related. And if that's the case, though, you still can work with that client yeah. within their pain tolerance just, levels, yeah, right? Just don't aggravate their their pain too much. You know, a little bit of pain is probably not a problem, but you know, a little bit of discomfort is not a problem. But don't aggravate it to the point where it doesn't settle within a few hours after the workout. Mm-hmm. And um, just you know, I would advise based on no evidence, but just my personal opinion, treat it like a stress fracture. In the you know, lay off it, give it some time to rest and and heal, and then gradually, you know, a few weeks later, you know, think about a fracture, six weeks to mm-hmm. heal. You know, gradually reintroduce some lighting to it at that point. Right. You know? Awesome. And okay. spondylolisthesis, in the absence of leg symptoms, just, just ignore it. It's not a thing. Yeah, like it's yeah. I'm I'm I I can do all the things. Mm. <laughs> which is awesome. Mm. Um yeah. And even with leg symptoms, just don't do the things that aggravate the leg symptoms, mm. right? Do all the other things. Mm. If you run and it doesn't make your leg symptoms worse, great. Run. You know. If it's only when you do a back bend and twist to the right at the same time that your leg gets sore, well, just don't do that. Mm. You know, like yeah. do everything else. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, That's, good talk. That was great. Thanks, Raf. Thank you. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So 
rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.